0: God, we thank you for uh, this morning and for a chance, Lord, just to gather as your people. And God, we recognize that every single one of us is in a battle. Lord, there is uh, something that is going on beneath the surface of our lives that is taking place in our hearts. God, there's a war going on for the throne that's in our hearts. And God, we recognize that and we plead with you this morning, that by your word that you would enter that space in our heart where there is spiritual warfare going on. God, that you'd use your word to, to speak truth and to bring life to us. God, I pray that you would use even this convicting and difficult passage to show us the glory of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, we live in a world in which there are so many different categories of people, so many different uh, types of people. The categories are really endless if you stop and you think about them, just how diverse we are as, uh, as people throughout the world. Let me just name a few different categories of people that I think we can all agree with. There are people who are uh, left-handed, and then there are people who are right-handed. There are people who like dogs. And there are people who unfortunately like cats. There are people who like to travel and people who do not like to travel. There are people who are good at dancing and people who are not good at dancing. That's me. There are people who will have a bite of whatever you're eating. And then there are people who are actually polite. There are people, this is my last one here, there are people who are, I think, truly followers of Jesus And then there are people who are fans of the New England Patriots. Had to slide that in there for Dustin Crowe. He's not even here today. He's on vacation. But football season's five or six weeks away. So I had to to sneak that in there. Look, I could go on and on about the various kinds and, and types and categories of people. I haven't even talked about relationship status or skin color or financial position or, you know, political leanings. And yet, despite all of the types of people on the surface, at the end of the day, uh, I think every single person in this world could could be categorized in one of two ways. It's either they believe in Jesus or they do not believe in Jesus. At the end of the day, when you get beneath the surface, either people believe or they do not believe in Jesus. I think the author of John's gospel, John himself, I think he saw people through this kind of lens where people either believe in Jesus or they do not believe in Jesus. I'm sure you've noticed that the word believe is one of John's favorite words in this gospel. In fact, it is the most popular word that he uses uh, in the entire uh, gospel. Shows up over 98 times. In fact, when you take a step back and you look at the whole uh, of scripture, the word belief shows up. Uh, over a third of its occurrences in this gospel alone. So John loves this word. John sees people through the lens of either believing in Jesus or not believing in Jesus. In fact, we've looked at the thesis statement, the purpose statement of John's gospel in chapter 20, uh, verse 31, a few times now, that John lays out the purpose for writing. He says, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and so when we get to our passage here this morning in uh, verses 36 through 50, this is a very significant moment in John's gospel. Uh, what John's doing here is he's actually closing uh, Jesus' public ministry. Uh, when, you st- when you move into chapter 13 and on, there's this uh, strong pivot that he makes where Jesus moves out of the spotlight in the public setting, and he begins only ministering to his own disciples. And so, in these last couple of verses, John provides kind of the final verdict of Israel's spiritual condition. Look with me at verse 37. John says, though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. This is again, John providing kind of his final summary of the people of Israel and where they are with Jesus. And it's quite astounding when you think about it for a moment. We've seen so many miracles. We've seen so many powerful teachings of Jesus. We've seen the the compassion and the love of Jesus. And yet despite all of those things before the people of Israel, they still do not believe. Now, we've seen this theme of unbelief all throughout John's gospel. In fact, there are at least 10 different occurrences of the people around Jesus who express unbelief. You remember how John's gospel opened, John chapter 1, verse 11. This is what began Jesus's ministry. It says, he, Jesus, came to his own, but his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. It's quite a beginning to your ministry. And then you get towards the end here in our passage, and again, there's this emphasis on the people around Jesus not believing in him. His ministry has been bookended by unbelief. Now, the reason why I think unbelief is such an important topic for us to talk about this morning is because there are two categories of people, not only in this world, but there are two categories of people in this room here this morning, that there are those who believe in Jesus Christ, and then there are those who do not believe in Jesus Christ just yet. And I would argue that both categories of people desperately needs to know the dangers of unbelief. Look, even if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, even if you believe in him, you need to know how to battle and fight against lingering unbelief that might be in your heart and in your soul, even if you're a Christian. And and, and here's why. Here's a a quote by Jeff Vander his book, Gospel Fluency. He says this, as a pastor, he goes, I'm an unbeliever, and so are you. And we slip in and out of believing God's word about us and trusting in his work on our behalf. We forget who he is, what he's done, and in light of that, who we are. That There are areas of life, your normal, everyday, busy life, where you disbelieve God, his goodness, and his gospel, that we fail to connect the way gospel truths actually matter to everyday life. Look, if you're really honest this morning, you would say, yeah, that, that describes my life day in and day out. And so today, as, as we talk about belief and unbelief, I'm not just talking about belief as a one-time decision about your eternity. I'm not just talking about belief as in, is God real or not? I, I'm talking about belief today as in this decision that you need to make every single day of your life that impacts every area of your life that it's taking all that God is and all that he has said in his word and applying that to every area of your life. In fact, you could trace every sin in your life all the way back to the root of unbelief, that it's a failure to take God at his word. So even if you are a believer in Jesus, you need to understand how to fight against unbelief. And it starts with understanding unbelief, which leads us to point number one this morning. John here, I think, explains unbelief in verses 37 through 40. I think in verse 37, John, again, is providing his final assessment of the nation of Israel, but then the next two words in verse 38 are vitally important. Do You see them in your Bible. It's the words, so that." These two words, really one word in the Greek, is actually a a purpose clause. This purpose clause is telling us that John is, is about to explain unbelief. He's about to explain why verse 37 has taken place. And what John does in verses 38 through 40 is he gives two explanations of unbelief, and he grounds them in two different passages in Isaiah. At the first here, in verse 38, uh, John is quoting from Isaiah chapter 53. Now, when New Testament authors are quoting from the Old Testament, they might supply a verse or phrase or a couple verses, but what they are intending is for their audience to recall the whole context. It's for them to recall even the whole chapter, even the whole book of the Bible, See, the people in the first century, they really knew the Old Testament. They had some parts of the Old Testament actually memorized. And so for us this morning, in verse 38, as John is quoting Isaiah 53, verse 1, we need to understand really the whole chapter of Isaiah 53 and how he's explaining unbelief. In Isaiah 53, you may know this already, but this is the famous suffering servant passage, which we now know is Jesus Christ. And when you get past verse 1, the next couple of verses go like this. He, referring to Jesus, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That he, again Jesus, was despised and rejected by men. Okay, So, so Isaiah was prophesying that the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, would be rejected that Israel, even the time of Jesus, would not believe in him, which is why John quotes in verse 38 of our passage, he says, who has believed, meaning, why did they not believe, even though the arm of the Lord, referring to the miracles, were clearly evident? And the reason for that is because Jesus did not meet Israel's expectations of what a Messiah was to be like. Did you catch that in Isaiah 53? It says, because Jesus had no form or majesty or beauty, that we should look at him and say, I'll follow him. And for the nation of Israel, they were expecting someone completely different uh, in the Messiah. They were expecting this big, tough, strong leader who would go and take over that Roman empire and restore the nation of Israel. And so part of their unbelief here is that Jesus was not what they expected, that Jesus failed to reach kind of their expectations of what the Messiah would be like. He had no form or majesty that they wanted. Look, this leads to explanation number one, just to put it very bluntly here, is that unbelief is born when we respond poorly to unmet expectations of God. In the same way that Israel had this unbelief, and we've seen this theme throughout John's gospel, they had this unbelief because Jesus failed to meet their expectations, so too that can happen with us in our own, in our own hearts and lives. That unbelief can come about in our hearts when we expect God to do one thing, and yet he does something completely different. That, that can lead us into frustration, that can lead us even to doubting him wonder if you've been there before where God doesn't fulfill some of your expectations and you don't handle that uh, very well and you say to God, what in the world? God, that, that's not part of our deal. Like we make these kind of uh, nonverbal deals with the Lord where we say, God, if I'm faithful to you, if I'm a good person, if I'm a good Christian, then you're supposed to give me the life that I want. You're supposed to give me the, the spouse that I want, the kids that I want, the career, the financial position that I want. And so when God doesn't meet our expectations, we can say to God, God, you're not holding up your side of the bargain. God, why why am I still single? Why, Why do my kids behave the way that they do? Why do I not have the career or the marriage or the financial position that I want? God, why am I so lonely? Like, have you been there before where you have these expectations of God and he fails to meet them? Just want to encourage you this morning and And almost warn you to be careful how you respond to unmet expectations of God. Because if left unchecked, those questions and those thoughts slowly become decisive conclusions about God's character. That over time, when we mishandle these unmet expectations, we move from Questioning God and wondering about why He's doing the things that He's doing to concluding that God's not trustworthy, to concluding that God's not good, to concluding that that maybe God doesn't really care about me. And then over time, as these unmet expectations start to settle into our heart, unbelief grows. And the more that unbelief grows, the more that there's this callousness and this hardness of heart that settles in where we no longer feel God work in our lives, where God feels distant because of that hardness of hearts. It happened with Israel, and I think it can happen to us. And so here's danger number one. I want to point out about unbelief is that unbelief can numb us to God's activity in our lives. I'll just give you an example of this. And the most recent demonstration of unbelief by Israel happened in our last week's passage. If you look in your Bibles at verses 27 through 29 of chapter 12, you'll see this numbness come out. It says, now is my soul troubled, Jesus talking here. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel has spoken to him. Now understand what's going on in this passage. We looked at it last week, but you have God's voice from heaven declaring, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again to the point where people around Jesus actually heard something. Okay? They heard God speaking audibly, and yet instead of believing in this voice and believing in Jesus and falling down on their faces, they revealed their unbelief, they revealed their, their hard hearts by saying, that was just thunder, that was, that was just an angel speaking. That, that really wasn't God who was speaking. That really wasn't the activity of God. See, because of the numbness that was developing in their own hearts, they miss God's work in their lives. And Look, you and I can struggle with the exact same thing when we poorly handle these unmet expectations by God. Look, when God is trying to work in our lives when he's trying to reveal sin that's in our lives, when God's trying to orchestrate maybe something beautiful in our lives, we can so often miss it. We can so often, because of this numbness that settled into our hearts, we can kind of explain it away. We can ignore it. We can say in our own hearts, that wasn't God, that, that was a coincidence, that, that, that was something else, that was, that was just Thunder. Right, we can open up the Bible and we're, we're trying to read it, we're trying to understand it, and, and the Spirit of God is trying to reveal things in the text to our own hearts and our own lives, and yet because of unbelief, there's this numbness that starts to settle into our hearts where we miss what God is trying to say to us. We miss the ways that the Spirit of God is trying to make Jesus look so beautiful in His Word so that we can conquer the temptation of sin in our lives because of this numbness that's in our lives. And we can just conclude it was just thunder. It was just something else going on in our lives, and we can miss what He's trying to do. Got to be careful of unmet expectations. Of God, It can lead us to unbelief. Well, here's explanation number two of unbelief in this passage is that unbelief always reveals a heart problem. Unbelief always reveals a heart problem. Look with me at verses 39 and 40. It says, therefore, they could not believe. And then, again, he draws on Isaiah, this time from Isaiah chapter 6, so no longer Isaiah 53, Isaiah chapter 6, and says, he has blinded their hearts and harden their hearts lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. What he's saying here is that the people of Israel could not believe because ultimately there was something going on in their hearts. Notice the the emphasis on understanding with the heart. He doesn't say understand with the mind. He's saying that he would heal them if they would understand with their hearts. Now, why? It's because belief problems are primarily not intellectual problems, but belief problems are primarily and ultimately heart problems. And what's going on here with the nation of Israel is not a, a lack of evidence. Like, Jesus has been pretty clear about who he is. I mean, he's been doing some outrageous miracles. He raised Lazarus from the dead right in front of them, This is not an intellectual problem. Their unbelief and our unbelief is ultimately a heart problem, something going on beneath the surface. I think these these verses are uh, often misunderstood to mean that God has uh, deliberately blinded eyes. He's deliberately hardened hearts in such a way as to override human culpability. Or or human responsibility. That's how sometimes these verses get misunderstood. And I think the key in understanding these verses is to understand the context of what was going on in the nation of Israel when Isaiah was actually writing this. See, Isaiah 6 is that famous passage where Isaiah gets a glimpse of the throne room of God. Remember that scene where he he sees God on his throne, and, and what does Isaiah conclude? He says, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, right? And then then God says, whom shall we send? Who will go for us, right, to declare this message? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me, right? It's like a famous, you know, kind of global outreach missionary uh, passage. And yet, if you look at Isaiah 6, God then says, well, here's the message that I want you to proclaim. It's a message of repentance. And in fact, Isaiah, you're going to proclaim this message of repentance to a group of people who already had unbelief in their hearts and a type of callousness that is beyond recovery. That the nation of of Israel had a type of hardness that because they, they rejected God again and again and again, God eventually gave them over to a complete hardness and a complete blindness. And so Isaiah, for the rest of his ministry, his whole life, invests in proclaiming this message that would never be received. Now, we've seen this process of of unbelief in different examples throughout Scripture. Paul talks about this process in Romans 1, where you have kind of a, a description of the downward spiral of unbelief where after the, the people continually refuse to believe, in spite of God reaching out again and again, God will eventually give them over to what they really want, which is hardness of hearts. You think about Pharaoh in the time of Moses, and I'm sure you know that passage well, where Moses is pleading with Pharaoh to let God's people go. And despite all of the miraculous signs, th- those 10 crazy plagues, Pharaoh still what? He hardened his heart. He refused to release the Israelites. In fact, if you look at that passage in Exodus, after each of the first five plagues, it talks about Pharaoh hardening his heart. But then you get to plague number six, and after that, God then hardens Pharaoh's hearts. It's just like Romans 1 that God gave Pharaoh over to exactly what he wanted, which is a hardened heart. Look, all that to say, unbelief is ultimately a heart issue. And this leads to danger number two that I want to point out about unbelief is that there is a type of hardness in the heart that is beyond recovery. This is what I think verses 38 through 40 is telling us about unbelief is that not only Is the inability of Israel to believe tied to Scripture's prediction of it in Isaiah? But that type of prediction is what theologians call a judicial hardening. Okay, in other words, what you see with Israel and their unbelief is not only true because Old Testament predicted it, and whatever Old Testament predicts, it will occur, but the unbelief of Israel was the result of their own hearts becoming hardened so that God already begun his judgment upon them by giving them over to complete hardness and blindness in addition to what had already taken place in their hearts. Look, over time, there is a a type of callousness that develops in the heart that that can be unrecoverable, that as the the soft soil of the heart where, where belief flourishes is choked out by unbelief. This does not remove man's responsibility. Okay, we, we want to jump to this side of it and say, okay, we're, we're not held responsible for believing or, or, or not believing. I don't want you to interpret John 12 in that way because all throughout Scripture, you're called to believe. In fact, you're called to take care of the condition of your heart. Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That, that's on you to make sure that your your heart is soft. Now, God's work in all of this is he's in charge of the new birth. We saw that in John 6, verse 63. It's the spirit who gives life, okay? So there's this, this great mystery that we're never gonna fully figure out of God's sovereign work, his, his sovereign grace, and yet man's responsibility to believe, that they're compatible in some mysterious way. But look at me this morning, Do not get so focused on the theology of this passage. Yes, I did just say that as a past. Do not get so focused on the theology of this passage that you miss the practical warning here to avoid and repent of the sin of unbelief. I want you to feel the danger of unbelief that's in this passage to not play around with sin. To, to not flirt with sin, to not underestimate the power of lingering unbelief that can happen in our hearts because you never know when when your heart will start to develop that hardness and that callousness that is beyond recovery. Look it happened to the nation of Israel. the, the people of God developed this hardness and this callousness because they were too familiar with sin in their lives. Look, I've seen this happen way too many times in people's lives where they get too familiar with sin. They're, they're church-going people. They claim to follow Jesus, and yet there's areas of unbelief in their hearts where they just let it linger and fester. There's unrepentant sin, habitual sin, and over time, they stop caring about the things of God. Over time, they stopped repenting, over time, they just stopped caring about Jesus because of unbelief. I want you to feel the weight of that. Look, maybe an, an illustration uh, can help today. I was thinking, how do I, how do I communicate this in a way that is understandable? I want you to think about the gospel for a moment like fire. Okay? If, the, if the gospel is fire, now we understand that fire has different effects on different objects depending on what they're made out of, right? So think about the effect that fire has on the object of a newly formed pot of clay. Okay, over time, what fire will do to that clay is it will harden it, right? It will harden it so much, it'll become so brittle that if you, if you drop that, that pot of clay that's become hardened, what will it do? It, it will shatter into pieces, right? Now think for a moment about the effect that fire has on a candle of wax, right? What it will do is it will melt that wax. That wax will submit itself to that flame and and even cause it to to shine even brighter. Now, here's my point this morning. You need to do everything that you can to make sure that your heart is not like clay. It's not hardened by the gospel, but that it is soft, it is receptive, it is moldable by the power of the gospel and the power of God's word that to take the warning in Hebrews 3.15 seriously, to, to, for today do not harden your heart against the Lord. Now, if you're, if you're tracking with me this morning, you should be asking yourself the question, well, how do I do that? Like, wh- what does that look like to make sure that my heart is actually softened so I don't fall into unbelief like the nation of Israel? And, and maybe the, the best advice I can get, give you this morning is to address the roots. Of unbelief. Address the root of unbelief. Look with me at verses 41 through 43 because here I think we have the driving force for unbelief. Now these verses tell us that some of the authorities within the Jewish com- community uh, are starting to believe. Now I, like uh, many other theologians and commentaries, believe that, that this was not uh, saving faith. This is not a genuine faith. We, we've seen Uh, this kind of superficial faith throughout John's gospel where it's just on the surface, it's not true and lasting, right? And I say that partly because if you look at the text, they're they're unwilling to confess it, which goes against Romans 10, 9 of what true faith will do. But verse 43 is really important. Verse 43 reveals, I think, the root of unbelief. This is taking place even in the hearts of, of the authorities here Because, look at verse 43, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. See, that in and of itself is the driving force of why we have unbelief and why we have all of these symptoms of sin that's in our lives. That the root of unbelief is having a desire for your own glory, your own self, more than a glory for God. These individuals here, they wanted to to maintain their position of authority within the Jewish community because it glorified them. They didn't want to give that up. They did not want to bend their knee to God. So so look, the the root of, of unbelief is not just a refusal to stop building up the kingdom of self. You know what I mean by that? The kingdom of self, your kind of of your life where people exist to kind of please you. You've got your plan and you're kind of operating that. You're advancing it, you're protecting it. It's not just a refusal to stop building that, but the root of unbelief is a refusal to die to self altogether. It's just like what A.W. Tozer has said. He says, in every human heart, there is a throne and there is a cross. And you are on that throne until you place yourself on that cross and die to self. And look, what unbelief wants to do in our hearts is to get us back on that throne. Say, no, you're in charge. You call the shots in your life. You've got this kingdom that you're building. Everybody exists for you. And unbelief, this root issue, is why we have so many symptoms of sin that's in our lives. It's why we've got sin that exists in our marriages and in our relationships. It's why we have sin of anger and lust and anxiety and fear. All of these things that take place in our lives comes down to the fact that we are on the throne instead of Jesus. Now look, at as a recovering people pleaser, uh, verse 43 resonates with me. Like, I, I understand verse 43. Like, this, this hits me between the eyes, and it convicts me because just a personal confession for you today. Like, I want people to like me. Like, I want, I want College Park Fishers to think highly of me. Like, like the more that that happens, the more that I'm, I'm fanning into flame kind of my own kingdom, even as I minister to other people. Like, that's messed up. Like, your pastor has problems and issues. Just to confess that for you, like, struggling with with that unbelief that happens in my own heart, in my own life. And, And yet, at the root issue, unbelief exists because we enjoy the glory of our own kingdom more than God's. And that root issue produces all of these symptoms. And yet, addressing only the symptoms of sin and not the root issue it'll cause those symptoms to come up in different ways. It's just like like weeds in a yard. So the answer for me and, and my issues and my struggle, it's not to quit ministry. It's not to you know, put my fingers in my ears when someone compliments a sermon. That's just addre- addressing the symptoms. For me to grow in my own unbelief is to address the root issue in my heart. And you need to do the same thing in your own life that you need to trace back where you see the sin that's showing up in your life and trace that back to you being on the throne in your heart and in your life and where it is that you're failing to believe God's promises and God's truth. Look, That, that is a hard, hard work. So let me, let me kind of guide us this morning. Let me give you three questions to ask yourself just to kind of help you think about this, this issue of unbelief. It's not going to be fixed in one sermon, unfortunately. This is going to take long work of just meditating with the Lord, meditating with his word. Maybe these questions will help. Here's question one, just to write down, is that in what ways are you building, advancing, and protecting the kingdom of self? How does the kingdom of self like manifest itself in your own life? in your own marriage, who you are at work, how you parent, who you are when when you're by yourself and no one else is watching. That's question one. Question number two here, and this might be a good question to ask a spouse or a close friend or someone in your small group, but when your kingdom of self is under attack, okay, in other words, when when someone kind of pushes back and maybe points out some selfishness or, or maybe they don't do what you want them to do, right, what is your typical response? Do you respond in, in anger? Do you respond by, by kind of tapping out right there and isolating yourself and, and running to other sins to help medicate that? Do you run to anxiety? Do you run to lust? Where, where do you go when, when that happens? And then number three here, another question is, what truths in scripture are you failing to believe that's driving the kingdom of self? just to trace back that sin all the way to the root issue and how to apply what God has said in his word to basically kick yourself off the throne that's in your life. There's just some things to reflect on as you go throughout this week. And look, before we come to a close this morning, let me just point out a couple of things in uh, verses 44 through 50 just to make sure that we hit on these things. Look, just to be honest, we're not really sure... uh, where or when Jesus said these things in these verses, uh, when he kind of cried out, when he shouted these things, because verse thirty-six uh, tells us that Jesus had already hidden Himself. Okay, so it's a little bit confusing. Many people believe that this is just John's way of concluding Jesus's public ministry; that the things that he says in these verses are are things that he's already said in his ministry. This looks very sim- similar to John three sixteen through twenty-one. or or even the prologue, it's almost identical. So we've already hit a lot of these themes, I'm not going to unpack them here this morning. But what Jesus is essentially saying as he brings his ministry to a close, Jesus is saying, I have come into this world not on my own authority, but on the Father's authority. Not for my own glory, but for my Father's glory. And I've come in order for people to believe. That Jesus is pleading with people again to believe in him, to trust in him with their hearts, not just with their minds, so that they may walk in the light and not walk in darkness. And that whoever does not believe will result in judgment on the last day. Look, just to go back to those two different, categories of people in the room, look, if you are an unbeliever here today, Look, I just want to plead with you to hear the words of Jesus in these verses, that, that Jesus has made a way for you to be saved, that Jesus is, is pleading with you to put your trust and your faith upon him because he wants you to walk in the light, to not walk in darkness, to understand that Jesus has paid all of your sin on the cross so that you might receive forgiveness and new life. Look, it's our desire today that you would believe that you would cross over from death to life today and to become a believer in Jesus Christ. Look, as we close today, I just want to encourage you, if you're fighting the battle of of unbelief in your heart, you've got some lingering unbelief, you might feel like the man in Mark 9 with the demon-possessed child who cries out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I just want to encourage you today to address that root issue of unbelief that's in your heart and to remind you that the way that we fight our thirst for self-glory is to be consumed with his. It's to flood our heart with the glory of Jesus in order to address those heart problems because belief problems are ultimately heart problems and to press into the things that God has given us in order to do that. God has given us his word to shine a light of his glory into our lives. He's given us each other to remind ourselves of, of who we are in Christ and the battle that we're in. He's given us the spirit of God to be able to apply these promises and these truths to areas of unbelief. And I just want to encourage you to fight that battle, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle fought in the spiritual realm. And there is a war Waging on for that throne that's in your heart. So fight and lean in to Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that in Jesus you have removed all of the condemnation, that you have made a way for us to receive forgiveness. So God, I pray for those of us who have believed in you, Jesus, for eternal life, that you would remind us to walk in the victory that you have already won for us. God, help us to never get over the incredible miracle of of new birth in our own lives, the gift of faith that you have given freely, and God, I pray that you'd help us to battle unbelief well in the power of the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.